There's a 1979 movie by Andrei Tarkovsky called Stalker. And this movie's set in this post-apocalyptic world. It kind of looks like Chernobyl. It's this collapsed city. It's concrete and stuff everywhere. And the main character, his name is Stalker. He's a guide, a Sherpa. And he leads people through this place called The Zone. They aren't very creative titles. And The Zone is this fenced off secret area in this post-apocalyptic world where underneath all of the rubble and the ruin, the laws of physics don't apply like they normally do. There's some kind of alien, magical, supernatural, nuclear power working beneath the surface in this place called the zone. And in the middle of the zone, there's a special place called the room. And the room is said to be a place that will grant the wishes of anyone who steps inside. There's a catch though, because it won't grant just any old wish, but it will grant the deepest desire of your heart. On this particular trip, the guide is leading a writer and a professor. And so they, they sneak past the fences and the guards of the zone and they traverse all the way across it. It kind of looks like a concrete Mordor and they finally get to the room. And when they reach the edge of the room, Nobody wants to go in first. It's kind of this Canadian standoff. After you. No, 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 no. After you. I insist. No, please. You go first. You go first. It's a terrifying prospect because it raises a terrifying question. What do I really want? If you entered the room and received what it is that you most desire, what do you think it would be? What do you really want? What do you most desire? Not, you know, what do you think you should desire or what would you answer if someone asked you, but what is it that you want more than anything else? This is actually a hard question to answer because our desires and our motivations, they're not things that are immediately apparent to us. Desires are kind of the engine that hums along underneath the surface and motivates everything else that we do. Humans are goal-oriented creatures. And our desires dictate the direction that we're facing. Our work, our play, our lives are oriented by our desires. And yet desires are the type of things that aren't completely evident. So this is why it's scary to step into a place where you're going to get what you think it is that you most want. The characters in the movie, they get to the edge of the room and they decide not to go in. It's too terrifying of a question. If you had the opportunity to enter the room, would you? Would you like to learn what it is that you most desire? Do you think you would be surprised by what you learn? Do you think you would be a little bit uncomfortable? Today, Jesus is going to show us how to figure out what it is that we want more than anything else. So would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6? Currently, we are in a season of church, the church calendar known as Lent. If you remember back before Christmas, the church was in a season known as Advent. And Advent is where we prepare ourselves, our hearts and our minds, 
to receive what's going to happen at Christmas. Lent is to Easter what Advent is to Christmas. Lent is the season where the church prepares herself to encounter and receive what is going to be accomplished in the person and work of Jesus on Easter. And so alongside whatever you may personally be doing during Lent, we as a church are entering this series called Detox. We're going to be detoxing ourselves spiritually. We're doing a gospel posture check. How do we shake off the traps and trappings of our culture that may have accumulated on us during the year? Welcome to the Detox series. So let's look at God's word together today. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. We're going to be going from 19 to 24. Let's read along together. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's keep reading. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness.
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is contrasting something. He's saying that our treasure, our hope, our security, where we lie up and store up and stock up the things that are precious to us is not to be based in what is fleeting and transient and fading and breaking and rusting away. Don't put it there. Rather, lay up your treasure in heaven. That's the alternative to laying up your treasure in something that's going to be gone tomorrow. Lay up in something that's not going to be, uh, lay up your treasure in something that's not going to be gone ever. Question, we're supposed to lay up our treasures in heaven. Where is heaven or what is heaven? Does Jesus mean by this that we ought not care about anything here and now? Don't care about any of this stuff in your life. Just care about what's going to happen once you die. I don't think so. I don't think that's what he means here when he says kingdom of heaven. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. At the start of his ministry in Mark 1.15, this is what he says right off the bat. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's at hand. It's here right now. There's at least, I think, 21 times in the gospels where Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. He talks about this with his parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. He says it. He also shows it. When Jesus interacts with people and places and systems and when he performs miracles, he's pulling back the curtain and he's giving a sneak peek at the kingdom that is to come when God is redeeming everything. Jesus shows us a world, the kingdom of heaven, where there will be no more sickness, where there will be no more death where there won't be not enough to eat. He's showing us a place where the discarded will be dignified, where abusive leaders will be called to justice, where the natural world behaves like it likes to, like it likes to, like it ought to, pardon me. So he's going at great pains to show us what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. That's not the focus here today. This is what Jesus is saying in these first verses. Don't invest in what is Fleeting, invest in what is forever. Don't invest in what will break, invest in what will restore. Don't invest in your kingdom, invest in my kingdom. Why? Because, as this last sentence says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Martin Luther, he said this, what a man loves, that is his God. Where we store up our treasure is what we treasure. So don't invest your heart in a diminishing resource. And this takes us one step closer to answering our original question. At the start, we asked this question, how do I know what I want? And now we see, well, where is your treasure? We've answered a question with a question. Let's continue reading on now. 22 to 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. This is the main connection he's saying here. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So now Jesus is giving an illustration of the principle that he just laid out. And he's doing this by using the imagery of a lamp and eyes and light and darkness. It's kind of uh, maybe imagery 
that we're not quite used to today. So let's, let's peel back the layers on this a little bit. Consider the following. If your eye is bad, if your vision is bad, the rest of your body is in darkness. You're unguided. You're stumbling and fumbling. You're doing the wrong thing. It's unproductive. Your brain, about 50% of the cortex, actually, sorry, over 50% of the cortex on your brain, the surface of it, is devoted to visual processing. If you're trying to assemble an Ikea chair in the dark, you're not going to get a chair out of the process. What are you going to get? You're going to get a sore back. You're going to get a bad temper. You're going to get a fight with your spouse. Even when the lights are on, you get that when you're building an Ikea chair, okay? This happens. So there is a relationship that Jesus is describing here. He's saying, if you get this thing wrong, this one thing wrong, this principle wrong, everything else that you do will be futile, unproductive, and in vain. As meaningless as trying to assemble a Ikea chair in the dark, to use my words. For the person who lays up their treasure on earth, for the person who is dedicated to stacking up their toys here and now, the person dedicated to building their kingdom, there's a deep futility to their striving. They're building a castle of sand and the waves are going to knock it down. If we want to figure out the full depth of this phrase, this, this imagery of eye and Bible, there's one eye and Bible, eye and lamp. There's another place we can look in the Bible. If you look at Matthew 20, Jesus tells another parable about the kingdom of heaven. And he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a master who owns a vineyard. And he wants to hire some people to work for him for the day. And so he goes out, he hires these people to work in his vineyard for one day, and he gives them one denarius. That was the typical wages for a day's labor. And these people are working, 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 up until the point where there's only one hour left in the work day. And when there's one hour left, the master hires some more people to come and work for just one hour. But he gives them one denarius. He also gives them a day's wages, even though they're only working for one hour. And the other people who've been working all day are not pleased by this. They come up to him and say, hey, how come they're getting the same money as us, but they're only working for one hour? And this is how the master responds to them. Matthew 20, 13 to 15. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? That last phrase, or do you begrudge my generosity, probably has a footnote beside it in your Bible. Most modern translations do. I'm reading from the ESV. There's a little footnote beside it. And if you go to the bottom of the page, and if you read that footnote, it says this, or is your eye bad because I am good? So now there's another dimension to this imagery of the eye. The mismatch of the priorities leads to a posture of the heart. A specific posture that is bad because God is good. So the bad eye only desires for itself, not for others. The bad eye gets upset and mad at God's generosity. It's set on the treasures of its kingdom, not of God's. And now Jesus is going to add one final element to this principle that he's developing. Verse 24. This is the final part. 
No one can serve two masters. That's important. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can not serve God and money. Do you see now how this helps us answer our question from the very beginning? How do I know what I want? Well, where is your treasure? How do I know where my treasure is? Where is your money? Your money shows your treasure and your treasure shows your heart. This is the chain link argument that's being developed before us today. So if your treasure is your kingdom, you will resent God's generosity. You will hate him because you're devoted to building up your kingdom, not his, and you can't serve both. Jesus has now shown us how to figure out what it is that we want most. So what's the litmus test? What's the barometer of the heart? Money. Money, money, money. Ooh, things just got tense. Did you feel it? Jesus talks about money more than anything else. He talks about money more than heaven and hell. He talks about money more than sexuality and politics. I can't teach on money as much as Jesus did, because no one would show up here anymore. But Jesus goes at great pains to say in many places in the Gospels, watch out for greed. Be careful about the love of money. God and money are the types of things that lend themselves towards mastery. And you can't be mastered by two different things. Be careful about greed. Be careful about the love of money. Greed is a peculiar, greed is a peculiar sin because it actually affects how you see everything else. It's not immediately clear that you have fallen into greed when you are being greedy. It's not as obvious as other sins. There are some sins that you can't accidentally fall into. No one accidentally falls into adultery. Like, oh, sorry, you're not my wife. But greed is one of those things that we can fall into without even noticing it. And so Jesus says, perhaps, that we don't even consider the possibility that we're greedy. And for us to think that this isn't our problem, all we need to know is one person who's more extravagant than we are. We have one relative that's very materialistic and we think greed is a problem for those people. It's not a problem for me. And if you're watching this here today and thinking that I don't need to worry about this, that's not a problem of mine, that's a very bad sign. So here's a brief diagnostic to see if the love of money has a little bit of a hold on your heart. And to give a fair warning, I took this test. I did not pass it. Question number one, how do you react to rich people, people with more money than you? How do you react to them? How do you view them? Most of us either fall in one of two ways. Either we tend to resent them. So you see that person and you think, look at them, those selfish jerks. Look at all this money that they've got. And perhaps you look down on them and try and make yourself feel superior to them. This shows that money still has power over you. If you like, if you dislike rich people, and feel superior to them shows a lack of humility on your part. So perhaps you try to feel superior to them. Or the other way, if you see rich people, do you envy them? Do you envy what they have? Because that also shows that money is a power over you. You want what they have, and you can't celebrate who they are or where they are. Can you treat this person as an individual 
worthy of dignity and respect, regardless of their financial status? Or do you tend to treat wealthy people better because they've got lots of money? Does their wealth make you think more of them or does it make you think less of them? Money may be affecting your ability to love others. Question number two, how do you react to poor people? Do you look down your nose at them? Do you immediately assume that they're just lazy, that they're just dumb, that they could get a job, they're just choosing not to? Are they unworthy of dignity and respect? Perhaps we look at those with less and we think, you're beneath me. Perhaps you feel sorry for the poor and you give money to them, but we think that we're better than them. It's so automatic, it's so fast. Do you care about them? Not just as a class, but individually as people. Do you encounter a poor person and expect to learn from them just as much as you would if you encounter someone with a lot of money? The gospel, as Timothy Keller defines it, is this. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe and more loved than you ever dared hope. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. So you can't look down on them and judge them. And you're also so loved that you don't envy what they have. That's according to the gospel. So can you love rich people? Can you respect poor people? How does a person's financial status affect how you view them? I did not do so well when I answered these questions. There may be others, other questions we can ask ourselves, but I hope these questions just prove to us briefly that we may not be as free from the love of money as we may think. So this question of our relationship to material goods, it's a perennial question. The people that Jesus was talking to at his time were very, very poor. Our problem is the opposite. We are very, very rich. Us, here, today, right now, we are the wealthiest people to ever walk the face of the planet. So if you don't have enough money, there is a certain real vested interest that you have with finances. And if you have lots of money, there's a different vested interest that you have in finances as well. We now, as wealthy people, doesn't matter where you are, if you are in the West, we are blessed. We look to money for safety, for importance, for control. Perhaps we try and use money to facilitate our reputation. We try and control how people think of us through sheer purchasing power. Money can be a source of value and importance, going to these places, being seen with these people, eating these certain things. So I hope you see in all of this that the problem here, at the root of all this, it's not the presence of money, it's the love of money. The problem isn't stuff, it's not money, it's the love of these things. You can have a lot of money and fall prey to the love of money. You can have no money and fall prey to the love of money. Having treasures and longings is not the problem. God just commanded that we do so. He said, you will love something. You will serve something. Your treasures and your desires will rest somewhere. Store them up here. The problem isn't the money. The problem isn't having desires. The problem is wrongly ordered loves. Our loves are out of order. We're loving things incorrectly. It's miscalibrated, our desires. What's the solution then to wrongly ordered loves? The solution is rightly ordered loves. 
And the terrain of desires, the world of desires, it's different than the world of beliefs. You have a head and you have a heart. They don't operate in quite the same way. So how did we get here? This love of money, this love of comfort, this love of reputation and stuff. How did we get here and how do we fix it? Nobody becomes a materialist or a consumerist because someone comes up to them and intellectually persuades them of this. They don't say, hey, the greatest source of joy and fulfillment in life is the consumption and accumulation of stuff. You might even hear that definition right now and think, I don't, I don't believe that, but we may still act that way. We may still have fallen prey to these loves, even if we don't adopt this because someone argues us to it. Rather, we adopt these behaviors because we're immersed in rituals, in liturgies, in patterns of worship, in heart-forming habits that are subtly and covertly and unconsciously suckering me and you into acting away as if stuff could make us happy or most happy and is most desirable. You don't think your way to this as a conclusion. You practice your way to this as a conclusion. Micro rituals have macro implications. Our smartphones are desire forming machines. Every day we see what the good life is, what is desirable, what behaviors are worthy of us working towards, what ought we desire. So we're seeing what is desirable and we're being formed and trained in what we think are desirable. That's just one example. But now we've examined our hearts and we've discovered that we don't love fully as we ought to, that our desires are a bit off balance. And how do we fix this? How can I be free from the love of money? Here's the solution. Only if Jesus is your treasure, will you be free from the love of money. That's the only way. Only if we see God as all desirable, all satisfying as the, as the superior source of fulfillment and joy and happiness will we be free from the love of comfort, security, status, and stuff. Jesus had the ultimate status and comfort and security, reigning in heaven as God most high, and he condescended himself. Divinity took on humanity. Eternity entered time. He dwelt among us and gave up his life on the cross. He sacrificed everything for that which he loved. Isaiah 53.11 says that God was pleased with the results of his sacrifice. So you today, watching this, you are God's purchased possession. He was willing to lose all of his treasure so that he could have you. He looked at you and felt this way towards you. Every treasure but Jesus will insist that you give yourself up to it. But Jesus is the only treasure who gives himself to you. So how do I make Jesus my treasure? One of the ways you can do this is by practicing gospel postures. Postures 
of the heart. How do we orient ourselves? What are the habits that we live in? These micro patterns with macro results. The same way that we get out of this problem is the same way that we got ourselves into it. We train ourselves, we form our habits by the practices that we perform. Just as we were being discipled and catechized and having our appetites trained by the world, the Christian fight is the fight for joy. So we adopt new rhythms of life, new patterns of practice. This is actually what the season of Lent is that we're in right now. It's a time historically of increased spiritual devotion. And the spiritual discipline that was usually practiced by the church was fasting, giving up something. You could be giving up food, you could be giving up social media, you could be giving up watching TV at night, changing our practice, changing our pattern of life so as to reset ourselves and refocus our minds on the person and work of Jesus. I will get rid of this thing to make room for something else that I want more. So here are your two options if you're watching today. Your first option is serving money. You can calculate all your behavior to maximize the enjoyment that you can get from money. And I hope you saw at the beginning, it's a short-lived and futile pleasure. Or your other option is serving God. Calculate all your behavior to maximize all the enjoyment you can get from God. If you open an economics textbook, so that money has several functions. One of the functions of money is that it's a unit of account. We can count $1, $2, $3. Another function of money is that it's a placeholder of value. So no one loves a $20 bill. They love what they can do with a $20 bill. And we've all agreed this, this bill is worth this much. It's a placeholder of value. So where you place your money is where you place your value. And only if you love Jesus will you be free from the love of money and also free to use your money as a means of loving Jesus. So church, let us fight to see Jesus as our treasure. In the near future, we're going to be studying exactly how to use our money to make Jesus our treasure. That's not the focus for today. Today, the focus is on our hearts. So ask yourself this, what do I really want? Is Jesus my treasure? And what do I need to do to keep building this relationship, training myself to remind myself of the truth that Jesus is all satisfying? And only if I love him firstly can I love everything else rightly underneath him. And for us as a church, Bayview Glen, what kind of church would we be if we were marked by this? What witness would we bear to the world if we lived like this? That there is something better than money, sweeter than comfort, longer lasting than stuff. What witness would we bear by this posture? What impact would we have if we actually acted this out? What kind of transformation would we see in this community, in the lives around us, if we were people that were freed from the love of money, and we're able to use it to show the world that Jesus is our treasure. Oh, that God would make us such a people here today at Bayview Glen.